Well, it's a joy to be with you all today. I heard the men are having a good time at the retreat. They have a record number of guys this year. They, from what I understand, there's about uh, 250 of them. That's a lot of men. Praise God. And I found out the camp capacity is 220. So I wonder what they're doing. Probably sleeping on the floors on mattresses or something. I'm uh, Joel Mathai, just for some of you that don't know me, uh, because I don't get to Southwood very often, usually attend the Anderson Church. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church, and uh, my uh, area of responsibility is the outreach to the Indian community. Uh, We have a little fellowship called the South Asian Fellowship that meets a couple of times a month, and we are looking to see what God's going to do amongst these folks that he's brought. He's brought the mission field right to us. And we're delighted to be, uh, have a ministry amongst those people. Well, as you know, we've been doing a series on the teachings of Jesus. And the uh, topic that was assigned to me was um, from Matthew chapter 6, was the passage. And the topic was peace. And as I read through that passage, Jesus is talking about worry. And so if you can stop worrying, you're going to have peace. It seems like the media is on an agenda, if you've been watching the news. It seems like um, they want to keep us anxious and worried. We live in a world of 24-7 news. There's a proliferation of experts and gurus and a, a deluge of the latest studies. And the result is an overdose of worry and fear. Regularly, we are told that educational standards are falling. The economy is in shambles. Crime is rising. Terrorists are going to attack us. Record number of homes and foreclosures. Stock market is starting to decline. In fact, it was less than 10,000 on Friday afternoon. And I'm not going to have any money when I retire. People have amassed large amounts of debt. Our food is dangerous. Predators are on the prowl in our neighborhoods. My body is under assault from saturated fats. I can't trust my banker. can't trust my accountant, my politician. Social security is on the brink of collapse. The government has the largest debt ever, $12 trillion. Gas prices are rising. College tuition costs are rising. People are losing jobs. The environment is getting poisoned. Soon we're going to run out of water in College Station. Our kids are never going to learn how to write because they're always punching keys. And on top of all of that, I can't even trust my Toyota. What else do we need to worry about? (laughs) You know, I got to say, as I was preparing this message, it was kind of convicting because I do have a tendency sometimes to worry. And um, I don't know if you all remember the uh, Y2K scenario. Do you remember that? (laughs) Remember how everybody was so worried about the Y2K? I mean, they were rehearsing all kinds of scenarios worldwide. I remember running into a a guy from India, and I was talking to him and um, found out that he was a group of 15 men that Smuckers had invited. You know, Smuckers Jam, they have their headquarters in Orville, Ohio. And I was visiting, I think it was Indiana where I was. And so this guy said, Smuckers Jam Company, the company of Smuckers has invited 15 of us to come over here. They were all here on short-term visas. I think it was a six-month visa. And they were software uh, experts, uh, computer engineers from India. 
so that they can take care of the Y2K problem for smuckers. They want to keep making jam. So, you know, I thought this was really fascinating how people had gone so crazy about the Y2K. And then it came to December 31st, and everybody's watching, you know. What's going to happen? And so finally we see on the television Australia. You know, they're the first ones to celebrate the new year and the new millennium. And they show the celebrations, and everything was okay. Ah, everybody sighed of relief. And then they moved, you know, to China, India, and everything. And pretty soon the U.S. And it was a much to do about nothing. But you know what? We all worry, don't we? Somewhere or the other, we tend to worry. So how do we approach worry? Well, let's turn to the passage that Matt read earlier today in, in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, which is actually 5, 6, and 7. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus deals with a, a host of topics in this section. One of them he deals is with worry. Look at the passage that he read. Verse 25, Matthew chapter 6. For this reason, I say to you, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Now, wait a minute. For this reason. I've got that underlined. Whenever you see that, you want to figure out what is he talking about? What reason? So you look at the previous verse. And the previous verse says, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason, do not be anxious. You cannot have two masters. No slave ever had two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon meaning money, wealth, possessions. So Jesus is saying as believers, listen, because you have one master, and he is God. Do not be anxious. I want to share with you three reasons this morning of why we should not worry from this passage, from the Sermon on the Mount. The first reason why we should not worry or we should stop worrying is because of who God is. His character, his person. We shouldn't worry just because of who God is. Number two, we should not worry because of who we are. In Christ. And number three, we should not worry because of the promise of God's word. In this passage from Matthew uh, 6, 25 through 34, three times Jesus says, do not worry. Look, at, look with me. Verse 25, do not be anxious for your life. Verse 31, do not be anxious. Verse 34, do not be anxious. I get the message. Don't you? The theme of this whole passage is do not worry. Jesus is telling us. In fact, he's going to in this passage, he's going to take this command and this concept of not worrying. He's going to argue. He's going to reason. He's going to elucidate. He's going to illustrate with all kinds of examples because he wants the disciples to know how they ought to live their lives in a material world. Jesus says... For this reason in verse 25, do not be anxious for your life. The Greek word there that's used for your life is the word suke. And it literally means the breath of life in this context. It's talking about life itself, the entire life. It's all-inclusive, comprehensive term that encompasses a person's physical being, his mental, his emotional, his spiritual life in the fullest possible sense. In other words, nothing. Absolutely nothing in any aspect of our lives 
internal or external, justifies us worrying when we realize who God is. Who is God? Think about that for a minute. Who's our God? What kind of a God do we have? Have you stopped and just thought about who God is? You don't don't know where to begin. Our God. There's no one like him, we just sang. There's no one like him. Our God is perfect. Perfect. What's perfect mean? What does it mean to be perfect? We can't even understand that concept. Why? Because we're all imperfect. I try to tell my kids I'm perfect, and they're very quick to point out I'm not. (laughs) Nobody is perfect. God is perfect. Perfection means there's nothing in there that's wrong. There's no impurity. There's no blemish. There's no spot. It's perfect. And when you think about God being perfect, you think about what? You think about His holiness. His purity. And how wholesome He is. We cannot identify with that. Because as we begin to concentrate on who God is, and as we get a little bit of glimpse of His holiness... We, uh, we realize it's tainted by sin. So we never are going to have that perfect, that visual until we see him face to face. And our response is like when Isaiah got a glimpse of the presence of God. His first reaction was, woe is me. I'm unclean. I can't even stand in his presence. He's so holy. That's our God. He's perfect. And when you think about his perfection, think about this. His love for me is perfect. His compassion for me is perfect. His mercy, his faithfulness. And that's the God we serve. That's the God with whom we have a relationship. He's our father. We are his children. Now, should we have any reason to worry? Worry is the sin Of distrusting the promise and providence of God. Worrying is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. Do you know the English word worry actually comes from an old German word. And the meaning of that word was to strangle or to choke. Think about it. Isn't that what worry does? It strangles you. It chokes you. It's like a mental and emotional strangulation. I decided to look this word up in the English dictionary. And in the English dictionary, if you look up worry, it says to feel, worry means to feel uneasy or anxious, to torment oneself with or suffer from disturbing thoughts. Did you know that worry can lead to mental and emotional stress? Worry can do that. And mental and emotional stress can take a toll. It can cause physical problems. It can actually delay healing. It's very important when you're sick that you have a good mental status. Think positive. Think you're going to get better. 
If you feel depressed and discouraged, it's going to slow your healing down. In fact, you know, it's interesting. Um, you've heard about, you've probably heard about this, that they say people who laugh more will live longer. It's actually true. Uh, believe it or not, John Hopkins University did research on this. They wanted to prove this scientifically, so they did research and collected all this data, and they came up with this paper that they published in the American Medical Journal that actually says that if you laugh, you'll live longer. I hope you all laughed this week. It's good to laugh. It's good to be happy and content. In fact, uh, the Greek word that is translated worry here in the Bible literally means in the original text, excessive concern. Worry and anxiety, like in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was visiting Mary and Martha, and he was visiting their house, and he said to Martha, Martha, you are so anxious, you're so worried, you're troubled about so many different things, these anxieties and fears and worries. You need to relax. In fact, the tense of the verb in this passage is also important. It literally means stop worrying, stop worrying if you are worrying, and if you're not worrying, don't start. That's the whole idea. I read somewhere about the composition of a dense fog. Listen to this. It has been reported that a dense fog, extensive enough to cover seven city blocks, a hundred feet deep, is composed of less than one glass of water, divided into 60,000 million droplets. So in the right form, a few gallons of water can cripple a large city. So it is with worry. The substance of worry is nearly always extremely small compared to the size it forms in our minds and the damage it does to our lives. Worry is like taking a a molehill and making a mountain of it. Worry is the opposite of contentment. Contentment should be the believer's norm. That should be our norm on a daily basis. So let me ask you, where is your contentment? Is your contentment found in God? His ownership, His control, His provision for everything you have and everything you will ever need? We should not worry, ladies and gentlemen, because of who our God is. David says that God owns everything. Everything in this world belongs to him. He says, the earth is the Lord and all it contains of the people and all those who dwell in it. The world and all those who dwell in it. Psalm 24. That means everything. Everything belongs to him. Everything we will ever have belongs to him. So why do we worry when he takes something away that actually belongs to him? We are not to worry because of who God is. Now Jesus begins to argue his point in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? This is an argument. This is a, uh, it's called in philosophy, uh, a fortiori argument where you say, how much more? It's not arguing from the lesser to the greater. In fact, I believe in this particular verse, it's going from the reverse. He's saying, listen, if God has given you a body, is he not going to take care of that? If he's given you life, isn't he not going to give you food and clothing? Therefore, fretting and worrying about such things betrays the loss of faith and a perversion of a more valuable commitment to God, who is our Father. 
So Jesus is saying, hey, look at the natural creation. Look at birds. By the way, it's very possible when Jesus was saying these words that there was a flock of birds flying right above him in the sky. Did you know that the way Israel is located, it is in the junction of three continents. And I've been told that twice a year, every year, 500 million birds fly through a narrow corridor in Israel. They go from Western Europe through Eastern Europe and make that curvature and go down to Africa as they migrate. In fact, there was a lot of problem with uh, accidents with airplanes in Israel years ago. 25% of migrating words, birds of the world fly through this airspace. And so they did, they did some huge studies. The Israeli Air Force and the Society of the Protection of the Nature of Israel came together to conduct these huge studies. They studied the migration pattern of these birds. And then they made adjustments because they figured out when they come, which way they go, how they go and all that. And they made adjustments to the, f- pattern, uh, the flight patterns of airplanes. And they were adu- able to reduce the number of accidents by 88%. So, by the way, that was just bonus material. No extra charge. So it's very possible that Jesus sees birds as he makes this point. And his point is not that the disciples don't have to do any work. Birds, you know, birds don't sit on a fence with their beaks open and looking for God to drop a worm in there. You know, they look for insects. They look for seeds and uh, they wake me up every morning. I mean, they, they, we have a bunch of bushes right around our bedroom, outside our bedroom window. So they wake us up every day, just like clockwork, just as the sun comes up. We can hear the birds chirping and starting to hustle and bustle. In fact, we have some woodpeckers in our backyard. Boy, they can make some noise pecking at them trees. And, you know, they go bang, 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 pecking away. And what are they doing? They're trying to scare the bugs that are under the bark. And they've made some pretty nice patterns on a couple of our trees. But birds, you know, they look for stuff. And so the point is, but the point is this, birds don't worry. They don't fret. And the disciples need to realize that God is their heavenly father in a very special sense, much more than they are than the father is to the birds. And the you in the Greek text is emphatic. So he says, Are you not much more valuable than they? So here the argument is from the lesser to the greater. We have an amazing father. He's sovereign over the whole universe. Imagine that, this amazing universe. Our God is sovereign over this whole universe that even the feeding of a little wren comes within his concern. What an awesome God we serve. Now I want to share an important statement with you. Listen carefully. As I was researching this passage, I came across this statement from a theologian. Here's what he says. He says, because God works in regular ways, there are scientific laws to be discovered. All right? We have this amazing universe. We have all kinds of things, and they all work in order. And they are laws. And of course, God is the originator of all of those. But as you look at that, we discover these laws. But listen to this. But the believer, but the believer with eyes... He sees simultaneously and discovers something about God and his activity. You see, when we look out at this amazing universe, we don't just see the scientific facts. 
But we see more than that because we see with believing eyes. We see God and we see his activity. You know, the unbelieving eyes are incapable of seeing anything divine in this gorgeous, beautiful, vast, awesome universe with an amazing array of divine touches all over the place. You know, I'm teaching a missions Bible study here on Wednesday nights and, um, and on Sunday mornings at uh, Anderson. And last Wednesday night, we went around the room and got to know each other. And, and one of the gals in our Bible study works at A&M, and I was talking to her, and I asked her um, if she'd met any Indian professors. And she said, yeah, I met this guy from India. He's a physics professor. And he's really happy these days. And, and, he, and she said, you know why? Because he just, he, they just got a grant for $80 million. Guess what? To study black matter in space. Now, let me tell you. I can use $80 million, and I can give you lots of good reasons for that. But you know what? With unbelieving eyes, he's not going to see God's handiwork in space. And they're going to keep looking at this black hole that has been there for so long because God put it there. You know? The unbelieving eyes will miss all of that. But Jesus says, look at the birds and just learn from the birds. If God so carefully takes care of such relatively insignificant creatures as birds, how much more will he take care of those who he has created in his own image and who've become his children through faith? Jesus says, are you not worth much more than they? Do you know who your father is? We are not to worry because of who God is. He reminds them with another illustration in the next verse, in verse 27. He says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Do you know our culture is just obsessed with trying to lengthen life? I mean, we exercise, we eat uh, carefully, we take dietary supplements and vitamins, and there's always new fads, and I don't know, I think the one now might be pomegranate juice. I was over at Sam's Club the other day, and this lady was pouring out samples of pomegranate juice in these little cups, and, and she says, you got to try this. This is good stuff. The elixir of life. I mean, this is full of antioxidants and polyphenols and all kinds of stuff, and oh, give, give that to me. I want to try that. I tried that. It's kind of a little sour, you know, but my wife, of course, wanted to look at all the ingredients and stuff, and she says, this is good. She got a bottle of it, and I drink a little bit every morning, you know. So here we do all this stuff with organic foods and we take vitamins and minerals, maybe thinking we can expand our lives a little bit, make us live a little longer. You know, my mother-in-law is staying with us right now. She's escaping the winter in Michigan and she's here for a couple of months and she has one of these pill box. Man, it's a, it's, it's a pretty good sized deal and it's got 28 compartments in it. You know, four for each day. It goes Monday morning, Monday Um, early morning, late morning, lunch, afternoon, whatever. But it's got these 28 little compartments that you open up, you know, and it's, it's got pills in it, all kinds of pills, different colors and everything. And I thought to myself, do you know why we take pills? We take pills so we can live longer to take more pills. You know, we all have to have some stock with these people that make pills. Uh, by the way, I'm laughing, but I've started taking some myself. I take two, two or three pills every day now. She's over 80. I wonder how many I'll take when I'm 80. You know what? 
you cannot extend your life beyond what God has already determined for you. Don't worry, Jesus says. In fact, you can worry yourself to death, but not to life. It's never happened. In fact, you've heard of Mayo Clinic. You know Dr. Charles Mayo, uh, famous for the Mayo Clinic. Listen to what he says. By the way, Mayo Clinic says they can treat just about any disease there is. They have experts from all the different branches of medicine. But Dr. Dr. Mayo from Mayo Clinic, he says, Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who have died of worry. Worry can kill you. You see, life is a gift from God. Since he gave it, he will sustain it. He does it in the animal kingdom. He will do it for us. Not only has God given us life, he has purchased us into his kingdom. Not only has he given us physical life, he's given us spiritual life. Don't you think that he's going to provide for us? He's going to give us everything we need to live for him because of who he is. His nature and his person, his character. So not only are we to stop worrying because of who God is, but secondly... We are not to worry because of who we are in Christ. Look at verses 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither do they toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. If God so raised the grass of the field which is alive today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Here he uses the argument from lesser to greater again. If God is going to take care of the lilies and the grass, don't you think he'll take care of you? Now it's interesting, there was a little bit of a debate about what this word lilies means. Do they have lilies in Palestine growing out in the fields and so forth? Well, most scholars believe that it's referring to flowers, wildflowers of the field. Well, we have some pretty ones here in Texas, don't we? Wildflowers. So flowers of the field and birds of the air. Consider the wildflowers. They don't spin a single thread to clothe themselves. And yet they are more beautiful and gorgeous than Solomon in all his glory with his beautiful robes of silver and gold and sparkling jewels. And it's true. I challenge you. Take a little piece of the finest fabric that Solomon ever wore. Put it under a microscope and take a look. You know what you're going to find? Sackcloth. Now, you take a flower and put its garment under a microscope. And what do you see? The delicate velvet-like petal reveals that exquisite, complex, intricate weave that can only come from the hand of God. The finest handloom, when placed beside a flower, looks like sackcloth. My friends... If God lavishes such beauty on inanimate objects, which last, some of them, only for a day, and they're dried up and burned, and they are gone. If he lavishes such beauty on inanimate objects, is he not more concerned to clothe and care for those 
who are destined for eternal life. When we worry, we are showing little faith. Yes, we all have saving faith, but we lack the faith to rely on God to finish what he has already begun. There is no promise that you're going to be rich. There's no promise that God will give you more than you need. There is no promise that he's going to lavish you like he did Job or Abraham. But God does promise one thing. He promises that he will take care of the necessities. Food, drink, and clothing. The basic necessities of life. My friends, worrying is not consistent with who you are. As a child of God, worrying is not consistent with your faith. Look at verse 32. He says, for these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things. This is a characteristic of pagans and Gentiles and unbelievers. They worry and toil and labor for these things. They are the ones who eagerly seek after all these things. Their life is all about that. They serve mammon and not God. In fact, it's very interesting in this verse, in verse 32, that phrase where it says, eagerly seek, literally in the Greek, it says, they seek with all their might. Unregenerate people are totally consumed with material gratification. They don't have any other resource. It's all up to them. Those who have no hope in God naturally put their hope in the things they can enjoy now. They have nothing to live for but the present. Materialism is what they live for. They do have reason to worry because they know not God and they have no hope. Many of our non-Christians worship gods out of fear. All the false gods, they try to appease them with their good works, always fearful and wondering if God is going to accept them. Their gods have promised them nothing. They provide them nothing. So they worry about the future. Do you know there's something wonderful about depending upon God and watch him supply your need. Verse 32 says, our heavenly father knows and he will give and he will supply. My wife and I can testify on so many occasions when we have seen God supply our need. We've been missionaries now for over 20 some years. And we're still missionaries, working for an organization called Christar, located out of Pennsylvania. We have a partnership with Grace, so I actually kind of have a dual role. But you know, it's not a bad thing sometimes to place yourself in a situation and watch God supply. If God has given you an abundance, I would say, give some of it away and watch how God makes up for what you've given away. God gives you more than you gave You know, when I uh, worked at the headquarters of our mission for about nine years in Pennsylvania, I was in charge of screening new candidates and training in cross-cultural ministry. And uh, never forget this one couple that came and they wanted to be missionaries in China. And uh, as I looked through their file and looked through their application, I noticed that uh, they were from a Southern Baptist background. So I said, hey, here it says that you are from the Southern Baptist." 
And uh, let me ask you a question. Why would you not want to be a missionary with the International Mission Board and go with them rather than coming and joining us and our organization? Well, his answer was amazing. You know what he said? He says, you know, with, with, the, with the Southern Baptist, everything is kind of structured and you decide where you want to go and you go through their training thing and, and they give you all the support you need and off you go. He says, I'd like to experience some faith in my missions experience. In other words, he wanted to raise support and he wanted to see God supply. I thought, wow, this is the first. Most missionaries would grab that kind of idea if someone wants to pay for the whole shebang, I'm gone, you know. But he wanted to go through the whole process like non-denominational workers do. And uh, they went to China to serve God. You see, as a, uh, the, issue, the issue before us is how does my Christian faith affect the way I live? How does it affect my worldview, my view of life? How do I approach life? Do I live daily depending upon God or do I worry every day? About the future. As a Christian, there should be no room for worry. It's a command. Do not be anxious, Jesus said. Do not worry, it's a command. Well, I think I've preached enough to tell you guys not to worry. How about some practical stuff and how to do that? That leads us to our third point. And then Jesus tells us what to do in that. And that is verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We are not to worry because of who God is. We are not to worry because of who we are in Christ. And now thirdly, we are not to worry because of the promise of God. Here's the practical part. Here's what we are to do to help us not to worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It means to focus your life on spiritual things. On spiritual matters. To focus on righteousness. That's what Paul tells the Colossians. Set your affections on things above. Affections. Things that you love. Things that, you, that are precious. Things that you spend time. Set your affections on things above. Not on things of this earth. Why? Because our life is hid with Christ in God. You see our priorities need to be God first. Our pursuit in life needs to be a pursuit of righteousness. How do we do that? It's all fine and dandy for me to preach it, isn't it? But how do we do that? We walk close to God day by day. How do you do that? We commune with Him. What does that mean? We begin each day with God. What does that mean? We read His Word. We spend time in prayer. We look to develop close relationships with other believers. Who can look into our lives and encourage us and point things out to us. And we do the same thing with them as iron sharpens iron. We work each day on our sense of spiritual discernment. Do you have spiritual discernment? That only comes as you spend time with God and grow in maturity. As you read his word and commune with him on a daily basis. You see when a believer is not fresh in the word every day. So that God is in his mind and heart. Then Satan moves into that vacuum. And he plants a worry. Worry then pushes the Lord even further away. We are to seek the things of the one to whom we belong. You know we just sang this song. 
Give me one pure and holy passion. And give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. To grow as your disciple in the truth. This world is empty, pale, and poor compared to knowing you. My Lord, lead me on and I will run after you. That's what, means, that's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To go after God. You know, when, when Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, the word kingdom there does not mean a geographical kingdom. In this context, it means his dominion and rule. God's sovereign rule. We are to seek first his rule, his authority, his will. It means we are to lose ourselves in obedience to him. It means we are to give our lives to serving and pleasing our heavenly father. To seek God's kingdom is also to win people into the kingdom. We are also to seek his righteousness. Not only are we to seek first the kingdom of God, it says, and his righteousness. So we are to seek his righteousness instead of seeking the things of this world. We are to seek after righteousness, godliness, holiness. And that's not something ethereal or in the future, but it's intensely practical. It's for today, for here and now. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, what sort of people we ought to be. He says, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.11. That has been an intriguing verse for me. What in the world did Peter mean? That we can actually hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? You mean we could alter the timetable? Living in holy conduct and godliness and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Amazing, amazing verse. You see, if we focus on these spiritual things, God will supply all our needs. Didn't Paul say, my God shall supply all your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 4. In fact, he says at the end of that book, be anxious for nothing, do not worry, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's seeking first the kingdom of God. And then the last verse, verse 34, he says, do not be anxious. And this time he's talking about the future. You know, there are some people who just worry and worry. And when they can't find anything to worry today, they start worrying about tomorrow. We have no control about the future. So why should we worry about tomorrow? God is the God of tomorrow, just like he is the God of today. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You know, I'll never forget our friends uh, who went to India, Dick and Shirley Rinker, a wonderful couple from Cherbusco, Indiana. And uh, they were going to precede our time in India by three, three years. We followed them three years later. And I remember going to say goodbye to them. And we went to say goodbye to them. He uh, it was all packed and everything. He says, come here, I want to show you something. I had these 55-gallon barrels. There were two of them. And he opened one of them up, and I looked inside, and I said, what's that? And he says, he had these packages of dehydrated food, like, you know, milk powder and dried peas and dried vegetables. And I said, what is all that for? He says, I got a phone call last week from this guy. He took me to his basement, and there were seven of these barrels. 
He had had him for a while, and he says, I heard you guys are going to India as missionaries. I thought you could use some of this. So he gave, the, gave him a couple of those barrels. He actually wanted him to take them all, but this guy was afraid there was going to be a nuclear war. And so he was preparing for that. This was during the time of the Cold War. Can you imagine that? Here's this guy who thought there's going to be a nuclear war, so he was stockpiling dried foods in his basement. Are people crazy or what? He was so worried about the future. Do you know, worry is a powerful force. It can warp your personality. It can steal your joy. It can rob your peace. It can foul up your relationships. It can cripple your faith. It can harm your usefulness. It can wreck your Christian testimony. And that's why the Lord forbids it. He says, do not worry. Do not worry because of who God is. Do not worry because of who we are in Christ. And do not worry because of the promises of God's word. I'd like to close by telling you about Sevilla Martin, who passed away in 1948. She was visiting her very close bedridden friend one day, way back in 1904. And she asked this lady how she kept herself from getting discouraged and worried with this bedridden illness she had. And her reply was quick. She said, Mrs. Martin, how can I be discouraged when my heavenly father watches over each little sparrow and I know he watches me too? That very day she went home and she wrote that very popular hymn that countless people have enjoyed through the last several decades. And here's the words. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And the chorus goes, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Amazing, amazing God. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you today. We thank you that your eye is on the sparrow and that you are watching us too. Help us, Father, not to be worried and anxious for anything because you know what we need. You will supply in your wisdom and in your time. Give us wisdom to submit to who you are because our life is hidden in Christ. Father, we thank you for this time of meditation on your word. And I thank you for the conviction it's brought to my own heart and life. And I pray that your spirit will work in the heart of each one who is here this morning. And so we can learn how not to worry and be anxious. But to trust in you. Because of who you are. Because our relationship with you. And because of your word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you. Have a great week.